My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you could find writing about video games over at ComicBook.com and our halfway house of a co-host, Brennan Katz, industry strategist or analyst. Strategist. Strategist analyst, offensive coordinator uh, <laughs> over at Parrot Analytics. Today, we have an absolutely packed show. I am thrilled that I've got the whole squad here. We are talking about James Gunn being named the creative co-CEO and co-chair of the newly formed DC Studios, trailer for Ant-Man 3, Damon Lindelof, Star Wars. I know Brandon is probably particularly excited about that one. We've got a little bit of Cade's Gaming Corner this week and a potential IP contract dispute over naming rights to said segment. Uh, <laughs> and then we are breaking down House of the Dragons season finale. I'm going to try to gear the conversation more towards the season as a whole. Finally, we're going to review Black Adam and then my interview with The Rock, which I'm sure a lot of you have probably already seen. Boys. What's up? Huge week. Yeah, I mean, all of it kind of in the last couple of days, too. Like, other than that, like, it was kind of like normal. But now it's like back-to-back, back-to-back bangers of awesome news. Not, not No bad news, really. Yep. Hollywood doesn't sleep. No, 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 no. Yep, so speaking of that, maybe an hour or two before we hopped on the mics tonight, I am glad that we pushed this to Tuesday because of this. Because this is not only the, one of the biggest news stories of the week, but one of the biggest superhero movie pop culture fandom stories of the year and that is the future of dc post wbd now that they are warner bros discovery and david zaslav came in and scorched earth the whole fucking place the question has remained who is going to shepherd what is undoubtedly their most lucrative franchise the answer is james gunn and peter safran now peter safran is a english producer who has worked on a lot of James Wan films, a couple DC films has steadily built up his filmography over the last 10, 15 years or so. James Gunn, of course, is the director of Guardians of the Galaxy 1 through 3, the upcoming holiday special, The Suicide Squad, and Peacemaker. Now, I always like to start with Brandon on these type of things because I think that we can talk all day about, oh, James Gunn knows how to make Outcast cool. Everyone has that take, but Brandon offers a unique insight into the sort of the inner machinations of Hollywood's business. So I'm, I would love to hear what led us to this point and what you think of it now. Yeah, I mean, you can just call me the Sean McVeigh of Hollywood, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't uh, know, though. He's, he's struggling this year, Brandon. That's true. That's true. And and I had Stafford in one league, so that's that's no fun for me. I'm 0-7. But- I just want to throw <laughs> it out there. My team is 0-7. It's the worst team I've ever managed in my entire life. It's, fucking- it's brutal because I remember week one, you and I were showing each other our teams and we're like, we, we love it. We're so good. Like both of us are struggling badly. In multiple leagues. All right. But yeah, uh, to this, this is obviously a very interesting setup. We've rarely ever really seen, particularly at this scale of a multi-billion dollar studio, a creative be put in charge as a kind of co-CEO. And just because he's a good filmmaker doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a good Uber producer. Having said that, I think this is personally a great move. I think the combination of James Gunn, who obviously has a unique irreverent style and can really balance darkness and, and comedic tone really well, mixed with the business savvy of Peter Safran, who is an accomplished producer who has a pre-existing relationship with 
Warner Brothers, you know, for about a decade. So he, he's no stranger to these parts. I think their combination really helps. And, and what DC has always needed is a consistent message and point of view, both from a creative and marketing standpoint, which they've lacked. They've had warring factions, in fact, over the last decade and multiple hierarchical shakeups. And I think this is important, particularly after talks fell through with Dan Lin to get somebody that the fans truly trust. And I think, you know, the, the critically acclaimed Suicide Squad obviously endeared a lot of DC fans to James Gunn. Obviously, his, his Guardians of the Galaxy work has been huge for Marvel. But this is a really, really strong step in the right direction. It raises a lot of questions. And a lot of uncertainty moving forward as, again, we're in, I think, the third regime change of D.C. in the last decade. But I think this will help unify everything under a cohesive vision that can guide long-term strategic development on multiple sides. Animation, small screen, big screen, uh, tie-ins with comics, all that. So I I'm personally impressed and think this is the start of something good. So before I swing it to Cade, let me just uh, throw in a few more details here. Gunn, of course, is going to focus on the creative side while Safran focuses on business of production from the THR report, quote, they will both report directly to Z David Zaslav and work closely with Warner's film bosses, Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi. Sources say the deal runs for four years and Gunn will be exclusive to DC. The goal is for them not to just be producers, but to truly function as executives, even as Gunn will occasionally own a film. On top of that, it's reported that the Joker sequel and Matt Reeves' Batman verse are going to report to DeLuca and Abdi, but everything else DC has got. Uh, I think it's awesome. Uh, as you've already said, they have a good, like, kind of partnership. You know, no one is taking on stuff they don't understand right gun handles the creative stuff and he's the right guy you want a guy who's creative i mean a lot of movies is are run by people who, who are in suits and don't necessarily you know have a background in making a movie uh from you know a creative point of view um so to have someone who is not just creative but one of the most creative people on a blockbuster level is very exciting and that also speaks to, you know, he's going to see people coming in, pitching him movies, and he'll be able to see the vision. He'll be able to go, I like your style. I like where your head is at. I want to take the chance on you. And I think that's going to be where they differentiate from Marvel. I don't know if Zaslav is like, these all have to be PG-13 or whatever. But if they can throw in well, some... Wouldn't that, wouldn't that nullify the point of this team like, i agree well, shouldn't and those be their calls in an ideal that's, world that's what I'm, I'm hoping for and so that you know they took a chance and let him make an r-rated suicide squad movie right and they yeah. let him make peacemaker which was tv ma or whatever so and not just any suicide squad but suicide squad film but i want to point out one starring one of the most likable hollywood stars we have margot robbie so they not yeah. only they didn't like give him the keys to batgirl or something. sure they gave him the keys to outside of you know, Cavill Superman, maybe their most consistently well-liked character that they had. And she's been in two R-rated movies already with Birds of Prey. So, uh, was that R? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, that was yeah. not bad. So they're they're already showing that they don't they've even taken get me those... started on how big of a waste you would ever was <laughs> black mask in that film. Right, that's a different story for a different sure. day. But Zazlov, they're willing to take the chances. Fucking gun. 
whoever, if you hear this, bring that character back. I agree. I completely agree. So the the fact that they're willing to take chances and not just be like, you know, all comedy, all it has to be like MCU, but a little bit different. I want to see James Gunn be like, okay, we can have that kind of stuff, but we can also have this weirder stuff that we can take some risks on a fucking, I've made a joke about condiment King on, on Twitter, but like, great great joke. I think that's not out of the realm of possible. It doesn't have to be that character specifically, but weirder characters that people are not familiar with. I think it's a guarantee that he shows up in live action in some way. Oh, I think so too. He will show up in some capacity. I don't think if he's getting his own uh, titular movie, but listen, uh, you, you don't tap James Gunn unless you are going to give him the freedom to experiment the room to take risks, take gam, take some gambles in order to see what works and what can be set up as long-term strategy. Now, the thing is, and we do have to say this, you want to make sure that he is empowered to be as irreverent and creative and out there as you want while still maintaining a commercial focus. Because listen, I think Guardians of the Galaxy was perfect, but it also got people in the door because of the pre-existing love that Marvel had established. And you got to be honest, before Guardians of the Galaxy, he was not a mainstream commercial filmmaker. His his films typically lost money. So there is going to have to be a balance and a focus on his great creative instincts mixed with, okay, this is mainstream and not just an R-rated bonanza of violence. There's going to have to be a a mix uh, of different styles, tones, and approaches that appeal to a wide array of demographics. Completely. Because this is a billion-dollar organization at, at the end of the day. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, before guardians he was doing like really weird movies and he still kind of mixed those in not directing but producing Scooby-Doo like too. yeah <laughs> of course famously, uh, famously penned scooby-doo of course uh he also he, uh penned dawn of the dead zach snyder's yes right. so he's he's got a he's got range and he made like the belco experiment he, he wrote and produced that and then that bright burn which was like an evil superman movie kind of thing and he's written some so video original. games uh so he he has a lot of range and i i suspect that he knows how to manage these kinds of things so i want to make a twofold point one of which is on zaslav and one of which is on gun if you guys recall i've said on this podcast i appreciate zaslav's ruthlessness i think that he's had to make tough choices for the good of the brand for the good of the bottom line and that to me is what leadership is you have to make choices that are going to eat that you're going to eat shit for up front and i think he's done that and i'm not saying i agree with everything he's done but everything dc related i have agreed with and i think that this is sort of a culmination of him understanding what this brand needed and that was to a start from scratch but to retain but simultaneously retain the pieces that the fans love. So while there is the loud Snyder verse, that doesn't represent the general fandom. What represents the general fandom is everyone is like, yo, Cavill's dope. And Mm -hmm. Cavill is like, yo, this is dope. So why it was always so difficult for WB to wrap their heads around that, finally they have somebody who's doing so. I said last week, I think the idea of entrusting Reeves, The Rock, and Gunn is brilliant. So now that's only doubled down when they're giving Gunn the keys. Now my point about Gunn, we talk a lot about how he's able to make outsiders um, relatable and heartfelt. And I think the key of that is Gunn is able to tap into the ultimate human emotion, a human emotion so strong that we have a psychological definition of people who lack it. And that is empathy. James Gunn understands empathy from the makers of Man of Steel is awesome. And the producers of Constantine deserves a sequel comes Guardians of the Galaxy is the best MCU film. 
I've had that take since it came out. And that I think is the epitome of what Gunn does well. He is able to put you in the, in the shoes. That is ultimately what empathy is. Can you walk a mile in another man's shoes? And that to me is Gunn's greatest strength. So when I see him as a creative force, I see him putting himself in the shoes of these characters and then therefore understanding what their arc should be. So all told, I think that this is a shrewd business move. I think that this is a fantastic creative move. Obviously all in tandem with the Man of Steel news that came out last week with Cavill being in Black Adam. This was clearly coordinated. I should Mm -hmm. mention that this also came out the day that the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special trailer dropped, which I don't even know what to make about that. That's probably a question for B, or maybe that's a hits bong theory. I don't know what that is, but- (laughs) It looked like it leaked first, and then they they released it. It leaked? Yeah, I saw a couple hours ago. Yeah, because it wasn't on any official channels, and yet it was surging through Twitter. So I think Kevin Feige was probably like, yeah, screw it. It's done anyway. Let's, Let's put it out there. All right. Cool. Speaking of Kevin Feige, let's move on to the first trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which which will be the first film of the MCU's Phase 5 and hits theaters in February. One word answer. Does this look good? Brandon. Yes. Cade. Uh, uh. Okay. Cade's going, uh, and I'm going no. So... I have serious concerns about this, least of which being it appears to be a 85% CGI environment for a franchise that has had notorious CGI environment struggles over the last two years. Cade, I saw you caught some shit for people being like, oh, well, the effects aren't done. Yo, we have a backlog of evidence. Thor just came out three months ago. Mm -hmm. That movie was in the works for years. So I have a huge concern with how they look like 2D characters pasted Mm -hmm. on front of like a screensaver. It really throws me off. Positively, the Ant-Man films tonally have always been fun. So I feel like applying that tone to a more almost sci-fi aesthetic gives it a sort of Guardians of the Galaxy-esque flavor that I might enjoy because... They're taking the tone of Ant-Man, but implying it to sort of world-ending stakes, not quite. So I, I think that this film is going to be fun, but I have serious concerns about sort of set pieces and how it's going to look and what feels like a cobbled together nature. Like the ultimate reveal is Kang, which is mm. technically a character we've already seen. It was a different character. Line. What? He's a different character. The one who watches is, was not, or whatever, the one who stays, whatever his nickname was, was not Kang. Yeah, but that's purely... <laughs> it's not. It's a completely different... Ju- just like Sylvie and Loki aren't Let the me same. finish my, my point. And that the big concluding line drop is him saying Ant-Man and Ant-Man being like, huh, that's me. Like, there's just something... <laughs> For a phase five starter, I feel like that is what this film is constructed as being and not as being a good Ant-Man film. Like I could almost guarantee you that Kang is going to have as much screen time as Black Adam did in his own film. Uh, and then the final sort of point that I do w- want to make about something that I like is I love the idea of Janet Van Dyne being terrified because she was saved from the quantum realm of being terrified of what's down there. I find that turn it off, turn it off scenes always work. Cade, Spider-Man 2 has an mm-hmm. iconic one. <laughs> and anytime you see a bunch of like heroes panicking over their own creation and needing yeah. to frantically turn it off, I'm always in on that. So I'm in on the construct of them getting to the quantum realm. I'm of course in on the character of Kang, but I am getting a very 
love and thunder vibe from this first look. Yeah, I, I think the reason why eh is like I feel like the writing will be there. Like the even though it's lighter, the the darker moments look pretty scary. I don't know if you guys saw the leaked Comic Con trailer. It's a bit different than this one. Um, but uh that one was pretty heavy towards the end of it. So I'm very interested in how they'll juggle the tone. And so far it looks like it, it knows how to balance itself. But my concern lies again with the visual effects. If you're going to sell me on this big grand thing with the quantum realm, it needs to look one distinct. Doesn't look like anything. It looks like generic sci-fi shit. It looks like guardians films. Yeah. It, it just looks, I don't know. It doesn't have an identity. And that's concerning. Uh, and that the the messiness of how they are just continuing to let these visual effects get worse and worse and worse and showing it out the gate to us like that. Like, hey, here's your first impression. First impressions are everything. This is what it looks like. And I know it'll get slightly better, but we have learned over the last year, especially uh, that it doesn't get significantly better. So I'm concerned, but I'm hoping at least at a writing level, it'll be solid. Jesus, when did you guys get so cynical and party pooping? Oh my <laughs> on the last God. year of shit that they've put out. For, yeah, first it, of it all, is honestly. I, I think the CGI concerns are overblown. I think it's it's going to be really cool to investigate this new world. And I think it is cool that they have unique character designs and a kind of new, uh, far from far from grounded, uh, you know, backdrop with which to play with. I think this movie is going to be Jonathan Majors' true like coming out party in a in a mainstream blockbuster way. I think the careful way they introduced Kang here, who was completely different from who we saw in Loki, and that's an absurd statement to make, <laughs> is going to loom over this film largely, particularly as we know he is going to be a shadow cast across all of the uh, multiverse saga, saga. And to have his talent there to be offering this, this shady, mysterious, all-knowing figure to be offering uh, what could be a, a complicit deal is interesting stakes and interesting character dynamics to me and, and is a great way to, I think, introduce Kang as a Loki-esque figure in which one minute he's stabbing you in the back, one minute you love him, and you're never really sure where you stand. I think that's going to be awesome. I'll throw into that the likely emotional stakes of what I expect to be uh, Hope Van Dyne's death in this movie to not only you know, liven up the the kind of depths of feeling in what has otherwise been a decent but surface-oriented franchise in Ant-Man, but, you know, also getting out a, a, a questionable <laughs> actress from the franchise. I, I think it has all the makings of a, a trilogy capper that is the best in the series. Sure. And it has far-reaching implications for the multiverse saga. Yeah. So on that point, let me just point out some uh, plotting things that came up in the trailer. Kang, who seems to imply that he has crossed paths with Avengers in other timelines, which of course is a hint at Secret Wars, has like a Dune-sized armada. Mm -hmm. I think that that is sort of the beginnings of the Kang dynasty plotline. There's a theory out there that Miss Marvel's bracelets and Shang-Chi's 10 rings will be pursued by Kang for some sort of quantum realm multiversal technology purposes and then there was no appearance from modok who has been confirmed um to appear in this film any thoughts that you guys have on those i, I think it's interesting if that theory is correct that they're almost kind of doing the infinity saga again not not quite but like structurally the idea of like 
the villain has to go collect things and they're they've been introduced previously and they could you know cause some sort of catastrophic weapon of some kind i think that's cool i'm still curious i'm, I'm hoping that's the case maybe just because i'm still most curious out of everything from phase four about uh the origins of the ten rings because they made it a point to raise that that importance and to note that it's you know it's not vibranium it's it's older than whatever else they were comparing it to and so i think that's a really really curious cool angle and again shang chi was largely standalone and self-contained for for much of its run so interweaving him back into the mix is going to be a very very cool challenge i okay sorry one last thing i think remember there was a a post-credit scene at the end of shang chi that has not been resolved to this point with with uh hulk and captain marvel okay yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. so yeah that would be interesting i'm hoping we learn more about that all right, so for our next topic is basically confirmation that Damon Lindelof Star Wars is going ahead. He had a writer's room over the summer. A director has been nabbed. I didn't write down their name. I'm sure B might know it. B, you are both our preeminent Star Wars and Damon Lindelof fan on this podcast. <laughs> so What a um, crossover. I'm going to give you the floor, sir. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm excited about this. I tweeted this. No doubt that Damon Lindelof's feature film work has been spotty. He has contributed to scripts that had multiple writers, such as World War Z, such as Prometheus, such as Tomorrowland. And, you know, there. I think you can have legitimate qualms about all those films, if not even more criticism. But his TV work has been pretty much unparalleled. Yes, the ending yes. of Lost was brutal, but at the end of the day, that was 15 years ago. He's more than made up for it with The Leftovers, with Watchmen, who, which are arguably, you know, top 20 series, top 25 all, series all time, if not higher. And so I think the fact that, A, he, he's proven that he's kind of learned his lesson, more or less, in terms of mystery boxes, and B, has been working with other writers in which to compose the script, and we've seen from previous experiences that he extracts the best writing from, from a team, and much like Gunn is now tasked to do, could kind of be an overseer as well as a creative partner. I think this has the makings of something special. Now, obviously, they released scarce plot details as if it takes place after Rise of the Skywalker, could feature some 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 of those characters. I would be more than thrilled if it doesn't feature any of them. And that's not to say I don't want to see them pop back up. I do, but which, I would love to see- Which does your gut tell you that they'll do? It makes more monetary sense, monetary sense for in financial sense for them to market it around known quantities. But I would love to see Lindelof and his team have, you know, free reign to com- create something new in the aftermath of the Skywalker saga. I would have loved if it was even uh, more disconnected timeline-wise from the Skywalker saga, so 100 years in the future. But that's neither here nor there. So my biggest takeaway is that this strikes me as that the, te- that the Taika Waititi film will be more of a Joker-esque type of let's see if the Taika Waititi film even happens because at this point two years in with him saying we're still trying to figure out the script that's a bad sign so my point being is that this seems like it's going to be truly the next flag bearer of Star Wars's film leg maybe I mean the original report did say that they've shifted focus from new trilogies to just making a good first off movie so Maybe they have sequel ambitions in mind. Maybe they're cool with well, everyone no, but having it, but the one-off. report did say that they're planning it as a one-off with the potential of doing more if it does well, which, you know, of course. All right, and then finally, Cade's Gaming Corner. Cade's Gaming Corner. Uh, <laughs> cease and desist from my lawyers will be <laughs> arriving in your corn stalk. 
imminently. Uh, Cade is Cade was lucky enough to play probably one of the year's most anticipated games, Gotham Knights. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't play uh, that too. God of War <laughs> Ragnarok, which I actually still need to play the original new one that came 2018. out in 2018. Yeah. Um, for some reason, like back then, I downloaded it and didn't vibe with it. I don't know. Bad. Choice. You'd love it. I think yeah. you'd love it. Yeah, for sure. And actually, if I if I bought it then, oh, I think I bought it on a disc though. Anyway, oh. Cade's played it and he's here to share some thoughts. Yeah, so I can only talk about the first six hours right now. Oh, uh, only. Only the first six hours. This is a long game. Uh, but uh, it is it is a continuation of the 2018 game in a way that, like, mechanically speaking, is, like, very identical. I mean, when the first enemy attacks me, it was, like, instinctual. The game, you know, comes up with a prompt. It's like, do this. And it's like, I just knew what to do. So they have not changed the gameplay in any Tap meaningful X. ways. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, whoosh, and I'm like, okay. And like, I knew exactly what to do, what would happen. So do not go in expecting, you know, a giant leap forward after four years of waiting. And I, I don't think many people were, and it's okay. The gameplay is fun. So it's, it's all right. But um, the driving force behind these games right now is the story. They are very well done stories with uh, this like big one shot whole thing. Like it's a big long take is how they do it. And so it's, it's very exciting, but um, Ragnarok is coming the apocalypse in, in Norse mythology. It's a big deal. And uh, Thor and Odin are around causing some shit. And I can't say a lot more plot wise, but I was very surprised because the 2018 one's very character driven. It's about Kratos and his son kind of accepting his demons and all this stuff. And this game is much more about the plot of Ragnarok and stuff, uh, at least in those initial six hours. So um, it, it's interesting change of pace. I I like it. Uh, in those first six hours, again, I need to I need to preface the first six hours. I cannot talk about anything after that. So based on my first six hours, I like it. Do not like it more than the 2018 game based on those first six hours. And this uh, game will release when? November 9th. So okay. it's it's a ways away. And reviews come out November 3rd, and that's when you will hear a lot more about bigger impressions. All right. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, House of the Dragon, episode 10. All right. And we are back. House of the Dragon, episode 10, the season one finale, The Black Queen, following up episode nine, The Green Council. The episode opens with the soon-to-be-dead Luke decrying that he wants no part of being heir. Rhaenys delivers news of Viserys' death and Aegon's crowning before Rhaenyra begins to have a miscarriage. The third absolutely brutal death sequence, sorry, birth sequence, <laughs> Freudian slip there in uh, season one. Rhaenyra lays her stillborn baby to rest as Sir Eric shows up with Viserys' crown. B, big picture thoughts on the finale before we dive in. I think I'm kind of an idiot because episode nine, the penultimate episode was all about Allison and the greens. And I kind of don't know why I went into this expecting more of a kind of blockbuster blow up between the two sides. Obviously after that, I should have expected a, okay, this is going to be Rhaenyra and the black focus. I'm not saying that I was disappointed by that. I'm just saying I'm a moron. My general thoughts is that, and this isn't necessarily the fault of the show, because I think that Viserys's long walk in the same way that Ned Stark's beheading and the Battle of Blackwater and what was season three's big thing? 
Oh, something else uh, good. The Red Wedding. Oh, yeah, yeah. There we and go. then uh, the Battle at the Wall. It's season four and so on and so forth. Every season of Thrones has had sort of its big moment. And I felt that that was episode eight. So I felt an inherent come down from nine and ten. And I that, that feeling was only compounded this week, wherein it was a lot of like table setting for a show that's not going to come out in at least a, a year. So diving into the- I liked it, but I will agree in the sense that Lucerus's death, as compared to the other major season ending uh, deaths, is, is the lowest ranked. Yeah, well, I because I don't even think it's meant to be in that construct. Like, I don't think it's meant to have the same sort of holy shit vibe to it. It's purely like a plot starter. Right, but even he's, for... He's, he's like the Franz Ferdinand of... Uh... <laughs> That's a great comparison right there. But just in the narrative sense of, okay, leaving you with some fireworks, it is yeah. probably the least explosive of the, I would say, Game of Thrones ending deaths i will say though that shot of vagar flying super cool over him is one of the shots of the show so far all right super cool shot but i will also say a lot of that battle looked like a live action recreation of how to train your dragon battles that's not a bad thing those are great movies i also saw this video that made the case that this is basically just shrek in live action and the similarities (laughs) are uncanny that was a good Um, one too so I think as Luke sort of gave the speech to his mom about wanting no part of this shit, I think I finally wrapped my head around the point this show is trying to make. And it's that like the seeds of war can fester, the seeds and the roots of war can fester and grow for over decades, but they could bloom in an instant. And often over stupid things like a miscommunication or a rabid animal not doing as it's told. And I find that sort of all of these characters seem to be unwillingly bearing the sins of the previous generation. And if it was up to them in a vacuum, except for, you know, maybe Damon and Otto and Laris, generally all the characters, if it was up to them, they'd be like, fuck this shit, enough. But because of the sort of legacy defining nature of what it means to be a kin or in a house, they have no choice but to fight these wars that their parents have laid. And that is sort of, I think what I finally wrapped my head around is that Game of Thrones is, sorry, House of the Dragon is a show about generational trauma and how you inherit it. And no matter how hard you try, you're stuck in that. I agree 100%. I'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to our, our categories later. But yeah, this show is about the absolute failings that the patriarchal power system lead to and how it not only leads to issues with uh, women in this world, but big, big, big issues with second sons that contribute to everything that you're saying. Because every second son in this, Otto, Damon, Vayman, uh, you know, most of the kids, has serious issues. All right, so moving on to the next big plot beat, Otto Hightower, clearly the superior political operator, more on that later, shows up to offer terms of Rhaenyra's surrender. And might I add, decent terms too. Rhaenyra shows up on Dragonback and tells him to get fucked. My main question coming away from this is, and not just this scene, but this episode in general, why does Otto or no one mention the fact, hey, Viserys said he wants Aegon. Aegon had this dream and blah, blah, blah. And then 
Rhaenyra could be like, and then I guess there's the old, well, then there'd be no show. But then Rhaenyra could be like, well, no, what my father meant was blah, blah, blah. And while that may not solve the war, while the Hightower still may have their schemes and their plots, <laughs> the fact that this isn't being mentioned, despite the fact that it is the catalyst of the Civil War, to me is insane. My guess, uh, to answer your question, is because it makes it much better down the line when somehow, some way, Alicent and Rhaenyra have that conversation together face to face. And that's the first time Rhaenyra mm. hears about it. Okay. And because it's going to be super interesting to watch her attempt to explain what the true meaning of that and both of them not believing each other. I like that. Okay. I'm sold on that. <laughs> and then, so my point about Otto is that, so I, I wrote down here, just like a gentleman's sweep in playoff sports, he seems to be trying to pull off like a, gentleman's coup like I, I don't know i mean listen only because alicent was able to recover Aegon before he was he was plotting to kill them all which he wants right right but don't hate the player hate the game they are in the game of thrones his point to rainier is your inheritance changed the day that your dad had a son you may have tried to ignore that for the last 15 years but that's the fact and i am sorry that it's taken you so long to realize that and whether he schemed or plotted it through nefarious ways or not, his point remains the same. Quote, every symbol of legitimacy belongs to him. Famous Game of Thrones. Power resides where man believe, believes it does. Otto has got them checkmated. Outside of dragonal warfare, he has them checkmated. He's offering better deals to all the lords and lands. He is, and still despite this, offering Rhaenyra a pretty good deal. I don't care about the deal or the point or, or the scoreboard. I care about you giving him credit where no credit is due just because he's your ride or die. Like, we can't That's say he's true. giving no, up no, a no, gentleman's kid. No no no, 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 no. I would admit if I was just blind face, like being like, Otto's my boy. You're trying to tell, generally... say that he's got morality on his side in the way he's handling he this. Does... He was just plotting her death. Yes, 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 yes. All right, look, I'm not saying he's wholly moral. What I'm saying is that he's playing the game better than they are. He, he's playing the game pretty well, but I want to see how this this war divides and goes before I jump into full support. Because as we saw with Danny at the end of season seven, she had the biggest army, the best allies. And like two episodes into season eight, bad writing notwithstanding, most of her assets were destroyed and gone. So things can change quickly in this world. All right. So what are your thoughts on this? Um, what's this place? Dragonstone? Yeah. This standoff. I think it's a cool recreation of her standoff with Damon earlier. It's an obvious parallel callback and shows how far she's come in terms of uh, power and leadership and the way she, she approaches conflicts. I, I think my big thing that I've said on this show and tweeted about multiple times is that no one has really shown a capacity for smart leadership in terms of who's really a viable candidate for the throne. I think Rainier has come a long way in her tactician uh, decision-making. I think she, she, she shows restraint here. Like Rhaenyra uh, says, she's thinking about the bigger picture, which is the first time where she's been willing to cede her own control and, and ambitions for the throne for the greater good. And again, we have not seen anyone really be morally worthy of the throne. That was a step in the right direction. 
Obviously, right. that's going to go out the window, though, with the events later. Right. All right. Next up, Rhaenyra tries to sell Damon on diplomacy and the Conqueror's dream, but Damon wholly rejects it and instead chooses to engage in domestic violence. Corliss survives his wounds only to get his ass chewed out by Rhaenys, who officially declares for Team Black. Understanding that a happy wife means a happy life, Corliss, who apparently, allegedly, finally defeated the Triarchy, agrees and declares for Rhaenyra and offers his naval excellence. I thought the Corliss scene was hilarious. Him being like, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I think you're right. I, I think we should just enjoy being grandparents and having our grandkids. And the wife is like, hey, dipshit, you, you've been gone for six years, and it's way too late for that. War is at a brink, and we're on her side. Because he's a, a, a naval seaman, I think this is the invention of that ship has sailed as a phrase. <laughs> Exactly. You can see it on his face. He's he's like, shit, I really should have come to this realization six years ago. Or at least like written a letter or anything. But look, it's a huge get for Team Black. He comes in and immediately is like the triarchy is squashed. The stepstones are ours. Here is my naval plan and sort of adds a level of tactile strategy beyond Damon's vague burn them all plan. Yeah, and I, I think they handled Damon well here. Not the domestic abuse, obviously. You know, they, they've consistently told us time and time again he's not someone to root for. But I think one reason he gets so enraged is that we, we, we all realize, along with Damon, that Viserys never told him about Aegon's prophecy. And that means, and Damon realizes this, he never, ever, not once, even before the kids, considered him a viable heir. Never once considered him really suitable to the throne. I think that's what angers Damon so much. And that's what causes him to physically assault Vernira. And I think it plays really well too, because it also sets up this slight reconciliation because he's the one who delivers bad news to her and supports her in the final moments. Well, I think what infuriates him as well is also the realization that Rhaenyra has the same moral compass as her dad did. And that is what always drove him nuts in the first place. Viserys' sort of unwillingness to quote-unquote be a dragon, he thought Nera would be all conquering with him. But when she's like, hey, I'm kind of willing to not be queen if it means peace, I think that is what sets him off most. It's it's a bit, and we'll get to this more later, when uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, I, I believe it's it's... Winston Churchill or someone famous on, on the allied side said lit a cigar. And everyone was like, why are you, why are you celebrating? Not really celebrating, but why are you ha- happy? Because, and like, cause Japan just won this war for us because it, it, it caused the U S to get involved and shift the balance of power. And, you know, it, it's a bit macabre and everything, but the fact that Lucerus is going to die, Damon has to be thinking like, okay, now it's on. Right. True. Yeah, because that seems to be, he just seems to want war, right? That seems to be his endgame. He wants to fight and fly and fuck and live. He's he's a hot-headed one. And I think, I think he also, in both a political meaning, takes huge offense to this usurp, usurpation. I don't know what the proper conjugation of that, of the throne, because she is the, the rightful usurping? heir. Yeah, but the us, is it the usurping you, of the throne? Okay. Usurple? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone on Twitter want to give us the correct one on that? We're, we're all Purple here. Purple. Exactly. So I, I think he's legitimately upset 
in a way that Viserys's dying wish is, is, or not really his dying wish, what the 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 plan and strategy he had implemented for years and stood by is being ignored. And I do think that comes from a place of love for his brother, just in the most hot-headed, irrational way possible. All right, final plot beat here. Rhaenyra sends out the various children out across the realm to deliver her terms to houses such as Aaron, Stark, and Baratheon. Quote, we must remind these lords of the oaths they swore and the cost of breaking them. Pictorial, if you ask me there, but uh, it's a, you know, we will get there. Eventually, Luke shows up to Storm's End and gets laughed out of the building before Amon demands he cuts out his eye. Luke tries to flee, but Amon pursues him on Vagar, who goes rogue and decides to eat Luke and his dragon. Rhaenyra receives word of Luke's death and the war officially begins. A lot of the show, and that was sort of my main point at the top, is that it is making the point that while the roots of war develop over years, it could be sparked over something incredibly stupid. And this is that, right? But it's not just the stupidity of Targaryens thinking that dragons will ever truly obey them. It is Rhaenyra's whole and total inability to strategize whatsoever. Otto, as I said before, is political operating the fuck out of this. He's going house to house offering military terms and betrothing of wives and doing it in a sort of I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Whereas Rhaenyra is going for a, hey, you owe me and I'm going to cash that in approach. And not only is she doing that, but she's sending her largely considered bastard teenage son who above all wants no part of this. So his heart and soul is not even in the cause. So while Rhaenyra is obviously being positioned as quote unquote, the hero of the show, her stupidity here is just as much as what ignites the war as anything that we've seen in this show. Her son tells her over and over again, I don't want this, blah, blah, blah. She ignores him, continues to forge forward and, he pays for it with his life. I think sending Jaharis uh, uh, to where whichever location he was sent to, that makes sense. It's a good symbol. He is the the heir to her, to her throne. And I think that makes sense. I think sending Luce was a mistake tactically because he's the one who's supposed to inherit Driftmark. So why not, as this war is getting underway, why not assign him to be the squire to Lord Corliss so he can learn from his, his supposed grandfather and, and, you know, become acclimated to leading what is the second largest, I mean, most important house in all of Westeros. You can send somebody else, maybe Damon, even though he's obviously not a great envoy. You can send someone, you can figure out someone to send to Storm's End instead of Luce. And, and so that, I think, was a really bad tactical oversight when you had a very, very sensical opportunity for Luce to grow and learn in safety from a great man and your closest ally. All right, B, any final thoughts before we jump into our categories? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, this show survived what could have been plot, uh, what could have been momentum stalling time jumps and actor changes, and really gave us a, a worthy prequel to ending, notwithstanding, one of the greatest shows of all time with the right mix of political intrigue and blockbuster spectacle. So I, I was, I think. House of the Dragon exceeded my expectations. And I think the the themes and the action that it brought was really, really, really high quality stuff. And I think it's extra impressive that they did this in what is a throat clearing first season that sets up the real story, which is right. what we're finally getting to. Yeah. This is basically the tarmac to the main flight, you know, like. Yeah, it's well said. 
All right, let's move on to our category since it is the end of the season. We have added a few more. The worst parenting moment of the season, of which there are plenty. B, go ahead. <laughs> uh, Allison's parenting of Aegon. I mean, in episode nine, she finally and rightfully calls out her father, Otto, for forcing her into this life, uh, manipulating her for her for his own needs, ignoring her agency and decision-making as an individual and as a queen, and just being generally uncaring about her feelings. Yet she has done the exact same thing with Aegon, who said earlier this season that he wouldn't challenge Rhaenyra for the throne, yet Allison obviously forced him into this very dangerous political situation by pushing his claim. And again, he, she ignores his yearning for affection on the way to his coronation in favor of insulting him. So really, she has had the ample opportunity to be better than her father and fix those mistakes and, and improve where she felt most slighted in her life. And she has failed to recognize it. And as the supposed most moral individual in this show, I think that's really, really tough and a really, really serious black stain on her character. Oh man, I always can count on B for a level of analysis for something that I have about one or two lines for. Well, but, so, but that plays into your beautiful thematic breakdown earlier about how this is about generational trauma, inherited conflict, and the needs of ambitions of the parents overruling the kind of common sense and, and desires of the kids. Thank you, B. There you go. Uh, all right. So mine is twofold. One I just touched on is Rhaenyra sending Luke to Storm's End, just complete lack of foresight and situational awareness. So like ability to read the room, et cetera, et cetera. These are pride driven men. And to send a child to be like, hey, do as you're told is just a wholly stupid move. I don't know why Damon didn't see that coming, considering he's pretty much the stereotypical quote-unquote alpha male uh, and then of course you know i've come around on this one is otto marrying his daughter to the king not great she was only 12 13 i think she was 14 14 the king is an old man and his best friend uh, he did it for wholly selfish purposes yeah. and more or less was the original sin of this entire war seriously all right speaking of worse worst tactical decision of the season brandon Okay, if Viserys was never going to wed Lena, which makes sense, she was even younger than Alicent, his failure to not immediately turn around and offer a marriage pact between Lenor and Rhaenyra right there on the spot it is just huge because that could have quelled the bubbling rebellion of the major power players. Because in that scenario, Rhaenyra likely never gets with Sir Kristen Kroll because she would be betrothed years before she slept with him in the timeline. And it would also remove a powerful ally from Allison, because obviously we've seen Kristen Cole turn into the biggest whipped little dog ever. And it also gives Rhaenyra and Lenor much more time in their childhood to figure out a legitimate heir situation, which, you know, I'm not honestly even trying to be silly. I feel like if they are introduced to each other on that level earlier on, it probably happens some way or uh, somehow and avoids a lot of the subsequent conflict. So I think Viserys waiting, I think it's in the timeline three to four years to make that match really cost the kingdom. So my worst tactical decision of the season is Viserys related as well. And that is naming Rhaenyra as heir. I feel like it was rushed. I understand that the kingdom felt that they needed an heir to be named, but if he had any remote semblance of patient, whether he married Alicent or whoever, he wound up having like three sons. So had he just waited a couple of years, 
and kept fucking, he would have avoided this entire thing. Moving on, though, to the best tactical decision of the season, Brennan Katz. In terms of individual ambition, Eric, (laughs) absolutely nobody has benefited more without experience, an ounce of blowback. Nobody's benefited more than Laris Strong, who is now Lord of Hell, the Queen's personal spy master, and is making inroads with Otto Hightower at the same time without suffering one setback, one, one you know, knock on, on his personal wealth and, and franchise. So he's sitting pretty right now, and he's getting feet out of it. So, you know, he, he's crushing it in his, in his world. So you and I are both going for pretty reprehensible picks. Echoing my worst parenting moment of the season, my best tactical decision of the season is Otto marrying his daughter <laughs> to the king. Look, man, this guy went from being, I mean, the high towers of Old Town certainly weren't a lowly house, but no. They're, they're pretty high. Okay. High tower, but no <laughs> legitimate hold in the seat of King's Landing power. He was the hand of the king and nothing more. And now, not only is his daughter sort of the established power queen, and not only does she now seem to be leaning towards the light of the seven, which I'm sure is going to come into play at some point, but his grandson is now the crowned king. As he said, every sign of legitimacy belongs to him, and Otto did this all by naming his daughter queen. And I think that as reprehensible as it may be, it's reprehensible in the world that you and I live in. But we are talking about the Game of Thrones. You live or, or, or what's the fucking quote? You live or you die or you play or you, you play die. the Game of Thrones. You either win or you die. You win or you die. And if those are the rules that we are playing by, if that is the framework and the structure that I meant to understand this world, then Otto Hightower was the best player that we've seen so far. Had Viserys not... Did get fired once. I just want to did, put that out there. Get fired once, but th- all that did was give him like ten years to recharge and scheme. He, yeah, but he got fired once, and Laris did the firing. Oh, because he burned his family alive. Oh, true, true. true. Those are bees' <laughs> rap roots coming through. But look, man, I just think that you know he is sort of the evil Tyrion, wherein he is playing the game, but his intentions are obviously if not diabolical then selfish yeah i think that's fair all right douchebag of the season again of which there are many no there's only one choice for this award and that is sir Kristen cole who is the primordial archetype of the modern day incel to a t that guy sucks he he gives off he emanates massive get fucked energy and we all just can't wait until he gets his face bashed in Look, I feel like that's the obvious choice, but I'm going, if you want to talk about OG incels, and I'm going for Lara Strong. Murders his brother and his father, which somebody this week says kinslaying is like the worst sin that you could do. So we double down on that. He is just a creep in general, which as I've said, is definitely the number one thing you don't want to be called. And as you said, like in the book, his motivations are unknown, which I thought was really cool. So to make him make it that he likes feet is just so douchey. And I, just I have feel a like- feeling we'll get more uh, from him, but yeah, that's he's definitely a creeper. All right. On the flip side of the coin, Brandon, your MVP of season one. 
Uh, I'm going to go real world. And I think Patty Considine, Millie Alcock and Emma Darcy have given the best performances with Matt Smith, just, you know, just closely behind. And I, I think it's been an extremely well cast, well acted show, but they are like, wow. Speaking of wow, my MVP of the season is Olivia Cook's Savage Fenty campaign. Not sorry. Uh, I, think, I can see it. I can see I it. Think, I think that that just speaks to that not many of the characters on the show are smart and even less of them are likable or root forable. I had stuck my claim to Lar- um, Harwin Strong. He died the next week. They have not really given us anyone to root for. So I am rooting for a. Yeah, but now we know that your support is the kiss of death in this game. The high towers are going strong. So, and as maybe the internet's only member of Team Green, <laughs> you know. All right, Brandon. I think this one is quite obvious, at least for me. But you've been known to zig where others zag. Your favorite moment of the season? We're probably similar. Viserys is back-to-back speeches in episode eight, and an episode I didn't love overall, but was elevated by just two, like you know, back-to-back home runs from from Patty Considine. Yeah, and I will double down on that and say, not only do I think it was my favorite House of the Dragon scene, but I think it is one of the great Game of Thrones scenes, back-to-back scenes of all time. B, everyone's favorite category, final time this year, a song of rising and falling, the top three things you're rooting for right now. I'll start us off with number three. I am rooting for a speedy production of season two. Let's get us a fucking fall, winter 2023 release date on the books. I mean, they did say that uh, it's it's still being determined whether or not season two will premiere in 2023. That would be a late premiere at best, but my gut tells me 2024, but hey, I'm yeah. hoping. All right, B, yours, three? Animal control. <laughs> Just, you know, we, we got to get some better trainers here, but again, it plays into the theme that those with power are not actually responsible or in control of said power. And when dragons fight, when there is a schism in a single house, the collateral damage is all encompassing. And it's really interesting to see how many suffer that aren't related to the conflict whatsoever due to this lust for power and this irresponsibility. All right, and then double back on that, your number two thing that you are rooting for right now. I am rooting for almost almost most of all that they continue making sound changes from the source material. Again, I barely fucking remember it because I read it in, like the second it came out in 2018 and I've had so many alcoholic beverages since then. I, I, I only remember like the broad strokes, but they continue to make very interesting choices. So for example... Aemond, it's not confirmed that he killed Luce in the books, but more or less, he he came back. And it, even if he didn't mean to, he came back and kind of it was assumed that, that he did. So to make it deliberate and, and very clear that he made a mistake and to see the last ounce of his childhood innocence be sapped by that choice and to see that as a catalyst for war and to, and to layer that decision going into season two with a do i tell the truth that i didn't mean it and risk exposing us to the truth that we don't control our dragons or b do i kind of claim false credit become known as a kinslayer and and really assume my villain role once and for all that's a great 
thematic pivot from the source material that makes Aemon so much more interesting, that makes my anticipation for season two storylines so much more interesting. So much like the early season of Game of Thrones that made deviations from the books that were good and positive, I hope that trend continues. Yeah, from what I understand, the House of the Dragon show has made basically every character less black and white and a lot more gray. It seems, but again, the fire and blood, what's, what it's based on, one of the big themes of that is that it's from unreliable narrators, which is a cool little detail in and of itself. All right, my number two thing that I am rooting for right now is for my impending Rings of Power binge watch to fill the void. I've not watched a single one yet. I've backlogged them all, and I'm probably going to binge watch them in the next week or so, and I hope it's just as good. I, I like the show. Uh, I give it a solid, solid B for its first season. I don't know if it's going to be your cup of tea. Which did you enjoy more? House of the Dragon, easily. And that's, you know, no disrespect to Rings of Power, but Rings of Power and Lord of the Rings in general is is far more black and white. And there is, it's a grand story of good and evil, which is, which is great. I like the darker material myself. You know, I'm always drawn to something that's a little bit grosser and, and, and psychologically torturous. You mean your favorite scene was when Rhaenyra pulled the dead body out of her? Yeah, no, I'm more like... <laughs> philosophically gross <laughs> i i was hiding behind my girlfriend during that scene specifically oh. and she kept reminding me it's fake and i'm like oh, i can't dude i you know what's funny my girlfriend and i had the same thing i was like cringing and she's like what's your deal i was like do you see what's going on on the fucking screen right now exactly right. uh the number one thing that you are rooting for brandon katz now that house of the dragon season one has come to a close i am rooting for continued quality expansion of the game of thrones franchise we know that there are several more uh ideas in development that doesn't mean they're ever going to get a green light or even a pilot order i think most likely a tale the tales of duncan egg of which there are three novellas a knight of the seven kingdoms uh out, out available is probably going to be the next adaptation that's a very interesting story it's obviously got a bunch of source material that they can go off of uh, i think the animated the proposed animated spinoff about the empire of yt which is based on imperial china for HBO Max, I think that would be super cool. Obviously, a huge genre expansion for the show, branching out into that territory. So I just hope that HBO continues to take their time, which they obviously will, because they sunk thirty million into the Naomi Watts Long Night pilot and didn't in development and didn't move forward with that. So they are clearly committed to taking their time to get it right. And I just can't wait to see what else the Game of Thrones franchise has to offer. And also, they should totally get into movies because a Robert's Rebellion or Aegon's Conquest movie would crush. Uh, okay, I love all that. My number one thing that I am rooting for right now is a Patty Considine Emmy nomination. I think it's deserved. I think it's one of the great Thrones performances of all time. I, you know, that episode eight, Walk to the Throne and speech to his family lingered with me for days. And that rarely happens to somebody, I think people in general, but somebody who covers and consumes so much pop culture for my thoughts and feelings to revolve around like one guy's body posture and speech was just incredible. And I hope that he gets his flowers. B, while I've got you, thank you so much for these last two and a half months, man. It's been great to have you back on the show, brother. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. You know, post-credit pod will always be my home. Exactly. And I hope that even though House of the Dragon is over, you will continue to grace us with your knowledge as much as you can. I appreciate that, man. I'm looking forward to it. All right, buddy. Now we're going to swing over to a breakdown of Black Adam. I was a slave until I died. Then I was reborn a god. 
My son sacrificed his life to save me. Alrighty, and on to the hierarchy of power in the DC universe finally changing. Black Adam has hit theaters, and it is all over the place, really. The reviews from critics have been not so good. The reviews from fans have been largely good. I think an interesting place to start this conversation is sort of what you were expecting. I'll start. I was expecting a Wonder Woman 84 level of disaster. I think that (laughs) I think that the time that it's spent in developmental hell, The Rock's track record of making complete movies, DC's brand in general, just had me worried across the board. So going in with low expectations, and I talk about this show, I talk about it on the show a lot, confirmation bias, mm-hmm. thinking something is what it is because you thought it was going to be that way. So there is a part of me that thinks, well, I went into it thinking it was going to be bad. It would turn out that it was bad, but I left entertained. I think that it is a, it ultimately combines CGI and humor and action in a way that feels like a living, breathing comic book. And like comic books prior to, you know, the late eighties and since then weren't necessarily known for their dark and deep stories. They were known for being colorful and fun and bright and loud and fast. And that is what this was. And I think sort of the ultimate summation of my feelings, I was watching This Is The End this past week. Kate, have you seen that? Yeah. And there are scenes where they are giving sort of camera confessionals where they're sort Mm -hmm. of on a Zoom type thing, sharing their thoughts. And there's a scene where Craig Robinson starts out all dour, like, you know, I have to drink my own pee. And then, I, you know, he looked real sad about it. And then a small grin starts to spread across his face and he goes, and it ain't that bad. <laughs> and that is sort of how I felt about this film. Like, is it like, is it the lowest common denominator of what comic book films should and can be? Yeah. But did I enjoy it? Also, yeah. And to me, that is the point of this genre, to enjoy it. And I did. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably never watch this movie ever again. But, like, I enjoyed just, like, cramming popcorn in my face and just being like, yeah, Black Adam just ripped that guy's hand off and paint it about Black is playing while he's blowing shit up. That's fucking, that's tight. Uh, I appreciate they were able to commit to this idea that the movie's just, like, one big battle. Like, and there's very few breaks in there. So it's... I don't want to compare it to Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> but you know, that momentum push forward. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, like structurally that. speaking. So, to that point, what do you think were the film's greatest weaknesses and strengths? In terms of strengths, I am with you. I think that, like, the action and the pacing were sort of perfect. You combine that with effective violence, well done CGI. And after a year of sort of bemoaning the general quality of CGI and set pieces, I think that Black Adam, like, here's the difference between this film and Ant-Man 3. Did Adam Smasher and Dr. Fate and Hawkman look CGI'd? Of course. But did their environment? No. When Adam Smasher is running down mm-hmm. the road, it that level of depth perception yes. looked real. And that is something that Marvel lacks. I talk about it all the time where it looks like they're, they're standing in front of a screensaver. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that this film was made before the sort of invention of the volume technology that we've seen Probably. in Mando and Star Wars and Marvel and all that. But I just felt that if you are going to make a CGI extravaganza, then it's got to look good. And this film pulled that off. Yeah, I was... Given I'm sure this is on a lower budget than many other superhero movies, you know, is more of, you know, it's a first first at bat <clears throat> for a 
lower tier character in the grand scheme of things. I was impressed by mm, how not, not quite how how much. Um, I mean, according to Variety, Warner Bros. spent 195 million to produce Black Adam. No, I don't know if that includes <laughs> I don't know if that includes the Rock's fees and the global <laughs> campaign that they did. Sure. Yeah, whatever. I mean, the money's on the screen regardless, right? And that's really important. Uh the 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 look of the movie, given it's in like a fairly generic looking city, the fact that it looks as good as it does, and you can you have a sense of geography and you have a sense of the character scale that's important and they deliver that very very well yeah and then just on a less technical scale and more on like thematic tonal scale i thought the balance of action and badassery and humor was perfect because a lot Mm -hmm. of time in mcu films you could see the joke coming from a mile away right because their formula is so pre-programmed and a lot of the times i find the jokes to be eye rolling as hell like oh man did they have to say that right there like couldn't they have just let that moment sit but when black adam does it i really enjoyed it like there was a subversive moment where he's giving he's giving sort of this inspiring i can't forget if he's giving or getting i think Mm. he's getting i think the kid is trying to like g him up and be like you could be our hero you could do this you could do that and it's just a stereotypical cheesy superhero moment and then the uh rock is like yeah yeah you're right and then walks through a wall and completely yeah. smashes up this kid's home like i found that to be a very effective <laughs> effective subversion of superhero comedy which is a general aspect of the genre that i don't often enjoy if it's mm done half-assedly which marvel does a lot unless it's like a james gunn film mm-hmm. so i really found that they struck that perfect chord here yeah yeah uh, there's a good joke towards the end uh where dr fate tells a character how he's going to die and so he just throws himself in the battle because he knows i don't die here like i die in completely different ways so i can fucking go in here and i was like that's so smart like this is a small little detail that you would think have no payoff and it's just like i love that that's great and then I really enjoyed the joke where The Rock is chasing down one of those goons and uh, Hawkman calls him. He's like, all right, did uh, the guy live so we could bring him <laughs> in to uh, question him? And The Rock, who had just thrown him, and then you see the guy, and he's like, he uh, didn't make it. Like, that <laughs> it's is, great. Good delivery. A general, very vanilla, stereotypical mm-hmm. comic book film joke, but it was applied well. Yeah, agreed. Then I have for weak points, because this film was certainly not without them, I think the mother-son subplot with like the kid leading the rebellion and he was a big skateboarder felt very like 2005. Very Makes dated, sense. which I yeah. felt was like a <laughs> echo of the fact that this film has been in the works for 10, yes. 15 years. And then just to that larger points, there were just dated superhero tropes in general that I felt added a level of corniness that had this not had those, like had the kids subplot been wiped out, this would have truly been like a dark anti-hero film, but mm-hmm. a- everything with the kid and the family, which I, you know, I guess you need in order to make Black Adam relatable in a yeah. sense, but I also found it simultaneously to be the film's worst part. I agree. They're, they're clearly trying to find a way to shoehorn in Black Adam as like, He's not a villain necessarily. He does things in a different way than everyone else, but he, he has a heart. He has a, a, a desire to protect people. Just his, his means are different. The, the point that they're trying to make is he's a result of nature and not nurture. Like his I agree. person yeah. is good, but the world around him made him this fucking beast. So all exactly. he needs is some guidance. Speaking of the rock, what did you think about his performance? I found it was a very wise choice to sort of, 
basically make him a supporting character. Like structurally, Hawkman is very much the lead of this film. Yes. And they give The Rock the sort of Arnold Terminator treatment where he's a man of few words, carries a big stick. And when he does talk, it's short, brief lines said sternly. And I found that to be an effective way to use The Rock. Does it sort of nullify his Rock charisma? Yes, but we've been talking for 10 years how The Rock does the same film over and over and over. So for him to, you know, take on a genuinely anti-hero role I found that that worked. I found that them not putting the dramatic, he does some great facial acting in this, like the scene, like him watching his son die and all that stuff. So they do put the dramatic weight on him kind of, but they don't put the narrative weight on him. He's not the one explaining, Oh, I've come from Kondok and that like there are, it's done through a flashback. He's not like tasked with sort of the um, what's the word for plot. When you explain plot exposition. Yes. He's not tasked with that. He's just there to look cool and sound cool. I think that was a very smart way to use him. And then furthermore, I'd say that the performance was sort of further buoyed by the twist, which probably you should have seen coming based on the trailers. But I was actually genuinely surprised to find out that it was his son who was the one who was like Condoc's savior and that he got his powers from his son. So I think that all of that combined to make a genuinely compelling hero. Well, yeah, I thought it was funny because in the opening of the movie, uh, you see a large man who somewhat sounds like The Rock come up next to his son. And I was like, that's what's going on. I'm, I was really confused. <laughs> I was like, wait, I, is, that, is that not The Rock? Yeah. And then you see him later and he's got this like huge head on a smaller Very, body. Yeah, that was so funny. That was Very so funny. funny. But yeah, uh, no, I completely agree. Um Structurally, this movie is very interesting, uh, and I think it was smart to put the emotion behind Dr. Fate and Hawkman. I think they are richer characters with a lot more going on uh, and are obviously a part of this modern world. So they have a better understanding of superheroes and whatnot and where this guy comes from. Uh, we've seen the fish out of water story many, many times, especially in the DC universe with Aquaman and Man of Steel to some extent. So... Uh, it's good to do approach it from a different angle. Um, it does make me wonder how they will handle Black Adam in future movies. Will he still kind of be not secondary, but not giving big speeches and having I a lot of lines? Say, it wouldn't surprise me if, because this is tough, right? You don't want to see DC fall back into their same habits of shelving mm-hmm. You know, it's been 10 years and there's still been no Man of Steel 2. So you don't want to see them go that long without a Black Adam sequel. But I think the most effective way to use him would be a side character. The Rock is known for leading everything he's in. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen him in a team dynamic where he's bouncing off someone since, I don't know, Fast Five. And that's maybe one of the most (laughs) exhilarating films of his career. So to see him have a charismatic counterbalance, I think would be thrilling. So does that mean that I am in on the idea of a Black Adam versus Superman film? No, because I feel like we've seen that trope a million times. Yes. But I would like to see Black Adam deployed in the way they deployed Batman in Batman v Superman where he's the pseudo villain, but Mm. they don't create the marketing mess around it and call it Superman, Black Adam, 
rebirth of justice <laughs> is gone, you know, some bullshit. <laughs> but call it Man of Steel 2, have Superman dealing with some other worldly threat like Brainiac, and then maybe call in a favor from Black Adam and be like, yo, I'll let you leave Kondok if you come help me. Sure. Something to that extent. Uh, when I spoke to The Rock, he said that while he's been touting this sort of Black Adam versus Superman film, he also told me that that is not the ultimate goal and that they want it to be just a piece of a storytelling culture. Where that piece falls and what shape it takes, I don't know. But I think a key to all of this is deploying Black Adam in an almost Iron Man-like fashion where Iron Man was the co-lead of Spider-Man Homecoming and mm. he was the co-lead of Infinity War and he was the co-lead of Captain America Civil War wherein mm. he is, he's the storytelling crux but not the marketing crux because once sure. he becomes the marketing engine, that's when it's shallow and mm -hmm. hollow, right? And if they're building it out as Black Adam versus Superman, that's when we know they're fucked. But if they're able to genuinely engineer a conflict, then I'm all in. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, because right now, like that cameo at the end was not bad or anything. Save your thoughts. Okay, okay. Then I'll, I'll just move on then. Okay, all right. Uh, favorite character? Mine is easy. I am a sucker for mystic powers. I think that they remain the coolest. I think Dr. Fate was dope. I think his CGI is another level of sort of how great this film looked. His suit and his mask look awesome. I love how they started the character off being Pierce Brosnan to add some pathos mm. and gravitas to it, but showing the mask sort of float off into space, clearly indicating that somebody is going to take up that role from here on out. I love the way that he was sort of used as the emotional crux of, you know, he's the big death. He's the one who gets Teth Adam out of that prison and wakes him up. So I think that the use of Pierce Brosnan and Dr. Fate was perfect. And then also, while not my favorite character, because I love Fate so much, I thought making Hawkman the lead was cool. I think making him sort of like a Black Panther-esque character, like they were very... T'Challa Wakanda vibes to his tech and his look and his sort of sure. stoic heroicness that he had. So yeah, I thought that the JSA in general was cool. Those two as standouts, but Dr. Fred in particular as the film stealer. You know, I'm a big Bond guy. So when Pierce Brosnan shows up in anything, whether it be Mama Mia or this, I'm all in 100%. So seeing him whip ass like actually care like it looks like he's having fun and and putting some depth behind dr fate is great dr fate's cool ass character too um so you hit all the nails on the head there and then i, I really liked adam smasher i don't think a lot of people are really talking about him but i think he's very fun he has a very innocent look and and he's cool and I don't like Noah Centennial as an actor, but that's the first uh, time I've ever, I like, I know who he is, but that's the yeah. first time I've ever actually seen him in something. They used him right. Cause in all the movies he's in really besides this, he's like the hot guy on Netflix, like in high school teen romance movies, but he's like, I'm awkward. I don't know how to talk to this girl, complete opposite inverse. And I'm like, Oh, this is fun. You're you can actually act. <laughs> I like yeah, this. He was fun. Very charming. Yes. Agreed. Like, I feel like a spinoff between those two is sort of ripe for an HBO Max show. Yes, 100%. That'd be a lot of fun, especially because... Like, like, sort of a teen comedy, college-age type. Yeah. Um, that one is on the house. 
one day. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about the big thing. Superman, he's back. I yeah. wrote a post in early 2020 that I think that The Rock's hierarchy of power jargon only led to one endgame, and that was this. Granted, while they only got the post-credit scene over the line in September, reports indicate that a headless Superman was going to feature instead. So this was obviously always in the works. I'm thrilled that they got it done. Before we talk about Superman himself, I just want to talk about their handling of the Justice League in general. Similar to Logan, how there were X-Men comic books in Mm -hmm. Logan. I love how the Justice League has been commercialized and mythologized in this world. They've got posters and comics and t-shirts and kids looking up to them. And I just love the idea of them existing within their own world. And people who live there acknowledging being like, it's pretty fucking cool that we've got these guys. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I just, I think that that's, that is the way that superheroes need to be handled. The characters in these world need to have the same reverence for them as we do. Yeah, I think the MCU has succeeded or succeeded as like a storytelling universe, but as a universe lived in, lived, yeah. lived in does not. And so to see them do this is is so much fun. And there's a fight between Hawkman and Black Adam in, in that kid's bedroom. And there's just like Justice League merchandise flying everywhere. And it's like, that's fun. And like, we have, I don't know about you, but like society has largely said like, oh, superheroes are like modern day Greek gods and stuff like that, you know, like in terms of mythology. And to see that actually realize in a universe where they exist is very cool. So I completely agree. That really excited me. Uh, I hope they continue to do more of that kind of stuff. So then about Superman actual's appearance, his costume appears to be a bit brighter. He seems to have a curl in his hair, a la Christopher Reeve. The Johns Williams score could faintly be heard in the background. So this seems to be sort of fan service 101. It's like, you want Superman? Here he is. And in an era of sort of post-credit scenes designed to sell the next film. And even though this one could be seen from a mile away, (laughs) this is the ultimate post-credit scene to me, right? It is a planting of the flag of here is what you can expect going forward. They've only doubled down on that in the press with the announcement of Man of Steel 2 being in the works with Cavill himself being like, I'm back. So I just think that while the marketing rollout of it was a bit clunky with the rock straight up telling me Henry (laughs) post-credit scene. Like I found that to be a bit bumpy, but as an idea, as a principle, I like as a fan, as someone who's been saying for 10 years that men have still fucking rules, you know, this has been a no brainer for so long. And to finally see it come to fruition, it's hard to not be thrilled. And now I think, especially, you know, there's the case of Ezra Miller, right? Where his star is only dimmed since he got cast. Yes. Henry Cavill's star has only grown. He's a bigger yes. star now than he was then. So not only is it like a storytelling character coup, but it's like a genuinely good movie star business move. Yeah, I mean, last time, not counting Zack Snyder's Justice League, but the last time he actually stepped on a set as Superman was before Mission Impossible Fallout, was before The Witcher, before that Sherlock Holmes shit he's doing and probably other things that I'm, I'm leaving out. So he is a, he is a Superman, you know, in Hollywood right now. And so to capitalize on that is not only smart, but logical. And I'm very happy. The rock like fought to keep this, like get this in and went over some heads, according to various reports that he went over Walter Hamada and was like, Henry, 
come on down. We're just going to do it. And that's doing it live. Fuck it. We'll do it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, and that excites me for the future of the DC universe too, is like someone who's just like, I know what's best and I'm going to take this into my own hands if I have to. So, okay. Where does your gut tell you that we see Henry Cavill's Superman next? I'll start. I think that anything other than man of steel two would be foolish. If DC wants to prove that they're truly going down a new road, the next time we see him needs to be in his own film. They need to fast track that shit do whatever they've got to do to get it out by 2024 and actually back their word up. Yeah, it's it's interesting because right now they're searching for writers. As far as I understand, they don't have a director, obviously. So it'll probably be a minute before we see it. I mean, is there a chance? I know they just went back over the summer to do reshoots for The Flash, but this whole Black Adam thing happened in September, apparently. So I don't know if there's a chance that he can show up in Aquaman or The Flash, because what else is there? Shazam, but that's pretty much in the can. What else? Yeah, that's it. Is that it? Yeah, so I would hate for them to wait too long to show him again. I think you need him at least in a cameo again to kind of remind people, like, this is real. We weren't just fucking fucking with you. This is going to happen. But I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I think that the way to do that is to get his film made. I, I hope so. I just know it takes time and I don't want them to rush something out. That's not good. Right. You know? All right. Speaking of black Adam, of course, let's swing over to my interview with the one and only Dwayne, the rock Johnson. Folks, today I am joined by a man who needs no introduction, formerly the most electrifying man in sports entertainment, now simply the most electrifying man in entertainment, period. It is The Rock. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Dude, thank you. So good. Thank you for that amazing intro. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I want to start with your sort of career as a whole. Given the multifaceted career you built, you're clearly someone that's always looking to improve. So I imagine that factored into your thinking when taking on both Black Adam and the superhero genre at large. So I'm curious, what do you think the superhero genre needs improving on? And how does this film try to do that? Well, I think the superhero genre, I felt that with Black Adam, we had an opportunity. I just didn't want to make a superhero, supervillain, anti-hero movie uh, that will come and hopefully people like it, and then it will go. I wanted to create a, I wanted to create Black Adam in hopes that it would help shift and bring in a new era in the DC universe. It's a, it's a universe that I love. I grew up on it. I was a DC boy growing up. Saturday morning cartoons were the super friends for me. I saw my first Black Adam comic when I was eight years old, seven or eight years old. He was badass. He looked intense. He had cool colors, black and gold. He had brown skin. And I thought, man, I can really relate to him. I want to be him. And I love Superman and Green Lantern. They were my favorite growing up. So I wanted to take Black Adam and not only uh, introduce a new era in the DC universe, but also and introduce a new character in Black Adam to the, to the universe, to the world, but also introduce other characters. And if you look just a little bit past the Justice League and you go into the DC Bible, you got the JSA sitting there and they are some cool complex, badass characters for fans to love. So we introduced five new characters in Black Adam. And ultimately, what I do believe that 
not only the super, well, I don't want to say the superhero genre. I'd rather say what's been missing out of DC, in my opinion, is fresh characters, new blood, but also just as important, what's been missing is leadership who actually listens to the fans and gives the fans what they want and what they're so passionate about. Because when you get millions and millions of fans who are passionate and wanting something and, and, feeling, and just wanting to be heard, and then they're completely ignored for years, not only does that piss me off, because <laughs> I, I, I came from a world of pro wrestling that I wrestled in front of 40 people to 40, 50, 100,000 people. But the key with wrestling for me as The Rock was always listening to the fans because they were going to guide me. So the same thing applies here to the superhero genre, to DC. Listen to the fans. So that's what Black Adam represents. New era, new characters, and listen to the fans. And if, if our goal at Seven Bucks Productions is to build out the DC universe, you cannot build out the DC universe without Superman. Superman must be in place, and he must be brought back, and now you build. I totally agree, sir. I've got to wrap here. I just want to thank you for responding to my tweet and setting this whole thing up. I, I, I usually close these oh, out by this, this was it. This is oh, it. I'm second. him. No, but so this is so your tweet was oh I remember that. Okay. Bro Bible. Yeah, dude, absolutely. Well, I'm glad we did it. I, I tell you what, because I wanted this to happen. Let give me one more question and then we'll wrap everything. Oh, up. thank you so much, man. And then I'll save my mushy stuff for uh, the end. Okay. I know you've obviously fielded endless questions about crossing over with Superman, so I'll spare you. As you touched on, the DC world is massive. Are there any other villains that you'd like to lay the smackdown on going forward? Man, again, open the Bible, open the DC Bible, and it's all right there. They are all right there. And now we're in a great position where not only have we opened the DC Bible and cracked that sucker open, pulled out five new characters, JSA, pulled out Black Adam, um, Easter eggs in Black Adam of human beings who aren't superheroes yet. So they're all there. Um, so our goal at Seven Bucks, a lot of talk has been made about Oh, is there going to be a bat? Is there, um, there going to be a, 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 a Superman versus Black Adam movie? Um, that could be cool, but for me, that's the easy thing. That's, not, that's just a moment. We want to create a long term storytelling uh, um, culture here with DC and at Seven Bucks. So it's all of them, in our, in our opinion, crossover. That's why in Black Adam, we acknowledge all the Justice League, mm. uh, and that's why we fought very hard. <clears throat> for years to get the end credit sequence put in there um, with Superman and Henry Cavill. Um, so <laughs> that's my way of <laughs> going around specifically uh, who we have in mind. But man, but, but by the way, that's the fun. Like you and I are smiling right now and laughing. That's what this should be. That's what this is. It's like we're DC. I, I love Marvel and I respect those guys and they're my friends, but we don't want to be Marvel. We want to be DC. We want to, and we want to blaze our own path. And by doing that, this is where we break out the DC Bible, man, and, so, and we tell stories. Sir, I, I've been screaming that Man of Steel is fantastic for 10 years, so thank you for that. I just want to say, I usually end these by touting the person's work, but for you, sir, I just want to say thank you for being a genuine hero of mine. 
when I told my mom I was going to speak to you, she dug through her many archives and pulled out. I'm not quite sure what this is, but wow. it's my face <laughs> superimposed on you as the Scorpion King. I've been with you since the Scorpion King, and I will be with you wherever you go from here, sir. So thank you so much. Dude, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm so happy we got this done. I'm so happy you love Black Adam. And it was awesome. I it was genuinely awesome. You kicked ass, and I can't wait to see who comes next, man. Thank you, brother. I'll talk Thanks. soon. See ya. Thank you, boss. All right. Thank you to The Rock for joining me and fulfilling a lifelong dream of mine. That was genuinely awesome to have the chance to talk to him. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you to Brandon for joining us for the last few months for House of the Dragon recaps and breakdowns. I will try to get him on the show going forward as much as possible. Follow him on Twitter at great underscore Catsby and all the work he's doing at Parrot Analytics. Follow my co-host Cade at Cade underscore Onder and all of his work at Comic Book. Follow me at Eric Italiano and at Postgred Pod. Leave us a review. This Thursday at 1130 a.m., I'm seeing a little film called Wakanda Forever, which means that social reactions are probably around the corner. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, next week, well, what do we got, Cade? What's next cooking? week uh well we can talk more about god of war ragnarok if you really want to oh, nice. uh, cuz like i said the reviews will go live and i'll be able to talk andor, a little more maybe like... now we, we could catch up with andor you yeah uh, watch that at all or? uh i have i'm a little bit behind but how many episodes are there no, left I think, I, I think 8 comes out tomorrow and there's what 10 i don't know or 12 14, actually what the fuck yeah. uh <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's not a whole lot happening next week. Um, so fun, Andor. It'll be Halloween week. So, oh no, that's that's, that's this, this coming weekend. Yeah, Dude, unfortunately, October fucking. Bye. Yeah. I, I like saw it. a tweet that this October didn't October as much as past October's right, day, and I think. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right, y'all. We will talk to you next week. Peace. Peace.